Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 162 for the 29th of August, 2014. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and I'm here with Paul Ducklin, and I'm currently in Sydney, Australia. Hi, Paul. How are you doing today? I'm great, Chester. Isn't it strange how suddenly our roles are reversed? Normally, you're at a conference or something, and there's all background noise. I'm actually outside, so if you hear dogs barking and wind blowing, that's just climatic conditions, so I apologize for that. Oh, that's not a problem at all. I totally understand. The reason we're a bit late this week, it being Thursday that we're recording, Friday the podcast will come out, is you've just got back from southeast Queensland, haven't you, where you've been at a Queensland police service event. Yeah, exactly. In fact, the the fraud and cybercrime group that uh, the Queensland Police have put together was a phenomenal event to attend. Yes, I've been to many of those myself in the past. And as you probably remember last year, our friend Rob Forsyth accepted an award from the Queensland Police to Sophos for services in helping people get cybercrime on the agenda. They call this whole series of events Project Synergy, as I'm sure you're aware. The idea being that we can't fix it on our own. We need the help of other people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a, an incredibly diverse group. And, and you know, I, I go to some um, other meetings that, that are more a little more U.S. focused. And, and it reminded me a lot of those other than it really, truly had a global nature to it. Uh, I was on a panel yesterday afternoon and, you know, sitting alongside me were representatives from the Secret Service, uh, from the Queensland Police, Brian Hay. Um, there were people from U.S. federal law enforcement. Uh, there were people from the banking industry, people from the financial services industry, and then the private sector companies like us and, and a lot of our competitors and, and you know other people in the security space. And Yes, I remember a couple of years ago at that Gold Coast event uh, meeting someone from Western Union, and his problem was pretty much how do you educate an agent in a field office when someone comes in and that agent knows the person is about to remit money to a scammer? How do you help that person learn how to confront the person who wants to give their money away and tell them that, sorry, your dream is a nightmare. This woman that you think is your fiance is probably a bloke. This person that is going to be the love of your life is just after your money. How do you actually tell someone that in a way that they don't get indignant and become even more determined to remit the money? And, you know, it just gives you a whole idea that there are, there are so many facets to this problem. And also gives you a lot of encouragement knowing that there are other people in other sectors working just as hard as you are, but in a different way. And it really gives you that feeling of synergy. Right. Well, and, and, and that was exactly it, right? You, you mentioned Western Union. I, I was speaking with a woman that was there from MoneyGram, their competitor, that offers a very similar service. And having them present along with the cops and along with you know a lot of other people involved uh, also interested in, in curbing this type of crime I think it allows a lot of progress to happen at the event, but more importantly, it's the business card you leave and go home with, that now, the next time something happens, you have a contact. You know someone within an organization that's also part of this problem and wants to help combat it, and you can use that as a trigger to get the ball rolling much more quickly than when you have to, you know, just kind of generically go, aha, gee, how do I get a hold of company X, right? No matter, you know, whatever business they're in. Yes. And even things like presenting evidence, you know, my time at those synergy events, I've met cops from Nigeria, Ghana, the Netherlands, and they've all got slightly different ways that their legal system works, that they present evidence and so forth. So it's just nice to be able to learn what the, the challenges are that other people face. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and I think during the breaks where there's time for food and coffee or uh, socializing in the evening at dinner and these types of things, or maybe at the bar at the at the hotel, everybody broke off into little groups, but it wasn't the little group of, oh, these are all my friends and I'm going to go hang out with just the people I know. And too often when I go to things, it's, you know, people do break out into groups, but they break out into everybody they know. And then they go off and just, you know, don't circulate amongst one another all that much. And here there was so much uh, interaction between people going, oh, that was really interesting. Now, here's my problem. How would you apply what you shared with us in my environment so I can start doing it, right? Yes. And if I may, Chester, I did have some feedback from people who were there who said, oh, we've just seen Chester's talk because you did your your explanation of credit card skimming. And I'd like to just report to you that the least flattering comment about your talk was somebody who said, it was great. So very well done, my friend. Well, thanks. Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's, it's a hard crowd to present to for that kind of information, too, because you, you're talking to cops and you're like, I'm going to tell them about credit card fraud? Like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a bit daunting, but uh, I'm very pleased to hear that. And I appreciate you passing along that feedback. I guess it's also nice to be able to realize that there are still many countries in the world where chip and pin is only just taking hold. You know, the U.S. is the famous one, but there are others, I believe, in Southeast Asia where chip and pin is not widely used. And as we've written about, uh, I think, earlier this year on Naked Security, we had cases where credit card numbers will be stolen in one country, so the UK, where chip and pin is used, the, the numbers will get shipped off so they can be cloned and used in a country where the chip is neither required nor expected. Uh, that gives the crooks a sort of second bite at the cherry. So unfortunately, that means that, again, until we all lift our game and we all take those extra steps... The chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Well, that's absolutely true. And, and throughout my presentation, I, I, I had my eye focused on the gentleman from the Secret Service that was in the audience because uh, he specializes in actually busting carding gangs. So I thought, if I'm telling a story out of school that, uh, that's wrong, um, you know, I'll probably get a glare from him. And, and I kept seeing him nodding as I was talking. So I, I think we represented the, the topic quite well. Good one. So what did you guys decide about Bitcoin? Because you were on a panel about how to deal with Bitcoin and these irrefutable transactions. Once you've sent the money, you've sent the money. Goodbye. You won't see it again. Well, I think the certainly the police uh, expressed the most interest in just the ability for money laundering in, the, in a totally unregulated currency is a bit of a nightmare, right? If we look at what criminals used to use to conduct underground transactions, it was primarily things like Liberty Reserve or eGold. And in both of those cases, um, well, in the case of Liberty Reserve, it's quite clear that it was intentionally created for criminal purposes, whereas eGold, you know, may or may not have been. But either one of them, they were both centralized, right? So when there was enough evidence that money laundering and enough criminal and crooked things were going on, the, the police were able to step in and do something about it. Bitcoin uh, is a real hassle because it's dis you know it's distributed, it's decentralized. It's like how do you regulate something that doesn't physically exist anywhere and doesn't have a place or a centralized location? And all you can really do is ask individuals to voluntarily comply. Like you could say, oh, when you file your taxes, you need to report if you hold bitcoins or monetary instruments that are digital online or something. But if you don't have any way to prove anybody ever has it, if you're audited then could the IRS or 
the uh, Australian Federal Police or anyone else prove you have a Bitcoin? Can you prove someone has one? And, and there's a, the answer to that, I think, is unknown. We had a very fruitful conversation about what those challenges uh, are and more where we may be going. I guess for those of us who are law-abiding and do want to use Bitcoin, the bottom line in all, in all of this is one of trust, just as in any transaction. And the fact that it's cool and cryptographic and groovy and digital doesn't mean that the person at the other end is also cool and groovy and cryptographic and digital. Um, it could be a crook who's simply using it because it's a convenient way of getting paid in an untraceable way, as, for example, the, the crypto locker crew found, because they'd take money pack or Bitcoin, wouldn't they, as payment to unlock the data after they'd scrambled your hard disk. Exactly. And I think the concern uh, from, you know, from a policing perspective is that people using this at the coffee shop in Vancouver that so famously installed the Bitcoin ATM and these types of things is legitimizing something that's largely been a vehicle for criminal uh, operations, right? So the challenge is the more people that decide to use it for legitimate purposes, the more difficult it becomes to perhaps try to manage it or regulate it or control it at all. You know, whether I, I don't know whether there will be any way to change that or control that or whether that's even true necessarily. It, it certainly makes it even more difficult uh, when, when something is used in a legitimate manner, but also is a huge tool for criminals that they, they almost require, right? They have to have some way of moving money around in the underground, and um, Bitcoin is the most efficient way for them to do it. I guess so. I thought that. Australia, along with Canada, had just decided that Bitcoins weren't the same as cash. Right. They're not currency. They are considered an asset. The Australian tax office, similar to the Canadian Revenue Agency, have decided that you pay capital gain on any growth in Bitcoins that you have. So that would be very similar to a, a stock that one might hold in that it is a monetary instrument and you do owe taxes on it, but it is not, um, it is not a, a currency per se because it's not issued by a government. It's different than anything that's ever existed before because it's not issued by a central authority. It's not tracked by anyone. And what is possession of it? Yes. Yeah, so if you SSH to your home server in another country and then transfer it in such a way that you can show that the packets never actually went through the country you've just entered, I guess those are some thorny problems facing regulators. Yeah. And that was one of the more interesting things in the panel as well was that uh, a few of the cops in the audience shared stories about Bitcoins they've seized, right? Just like the famous Silk Road incident with the uh, Dread Pirate Roberts in the United States having Bitcoins seized by the FBI. Um, the Australian police have also had several instances now where proceeds of crimes was being stored in Bitcoins and uh, they were able to take possession of those Bitcoins. The cops aren't ignorant to this. It's just a matter of us figuring out what the new landscape looks like. Well, it sounds as though you've had a fascinating time up in Queensland, and I'm glad that somebody from Sophos was able to make it this year. I couldn't. Um, as I've said, I've enjoyed those events in the past precisely because it's a chance to meet other people and, in many cases, get a whole new perspective on how you can do your own stuff better, as well as perhaps daring to give them advice on things they could try. Absolutely. So I, I felt privileged to be able to be a part of it. And uh, because of that, I'm going to wrap up Sophos Security Chat Chat 162. As always, for the latest security news, please visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. Uh, all of our podcasts are available on iTunes, the TuneIn app, 
or, or via RSS, and you can also listen to everything over at soundcloud.com slash software security. And until next time, stay secure.